listen You can hear their hearts beating Hello, everyone. You're listening to American Indian Airwaves. For Marcus Lopez, I'm your host, Larry Smith. I think to the late 1800s in California and where various fires have taken place, you know, the the Feather River drainage in its own, where the Dixie Fire originated at, is a very fire-prone landscape. It burns very frequently, and there's hardly an inch of it that hadn't burned within the last, you know, 100 years. And probably even hardly an inch of it that didn't burn within the last 20 years. I mean, the Dixie Fire originally was burning through the footprint of, uh, of other fires, such as the, you know, the Butte Lightning Complex from 2008 and the Story Fire and others. Today on American Indian Airwaves, an in-depth conversation on the history of Northern California in relationship to the Dixie Fires, traditional indigenous fire management practices, the California drought, and the recent publication of the IPCC's sixth assessment report and its impact on Mother Earth and indigenous peoples throughout Northern California. You're listening to American Indian Airwaves. You can hear when the moon shines bright, the lone blue elk in the black of the night. You can hear, you can hear the whisper in the valley. Mm-hmm. And you know when come a cunny blows to the Bahu drum, it's the warriors who are marching. First news throughout Indian Country. In Park Rapids, Minnesota, on August 16th, four water protectors locked to each other and to machines halted work at the Enbridge Line 3 work site near Hay Creek, Minnesota. The action comes as part of a protracted ground resistance in the Enbridge Pipeline 3 struggle, where to date over 700 water protectors have been arrested. Meanwhile, with drought conditions continuing across northern Minnesota and with water restrictions in place in numerous municipalities, Enbridge continues to pump water for its tar sands pipeline, now turning to city aquifers, including Park Rapids, Minnesota. Last week, the Assistant Secretary of the Army for Civil Works, along with other representatives from the Army Corps of Engineers and the Department of Interior, again met with Anishinaabe Nation representatives and land defenders to discuss Line 3 construction, wild rice beds, and now 28 chemical spills into rivers and wetlands by Enbridge, including the headwaters of the Mississippi River. The Army Corps and the White House continue to remain silent. The existing Enbridge Line 3 pipeline ships crude oil from Alberta to Superior, Wisconsin. It spans northern Minnesota, crossing the Leech Lake and Fond du Lake Nations, 
and the 1854, 1855, and 1842 treaty areas. The $7.5 billion proposed new Line 3 pipeline would be the largest project in Enbridge's history and one of the largest crude oil pipelines in the world, carrying up to 915,000 barrels per day of one of the dirtiest fuels on earth, tar sands crude. And in Eagle Butte, South Dakota, the South Dakota Department of Education has eliminated and erased the curriculum portion regarding indigenous peoples from a working group's recommendation for the new South Dakota Public Education Curriculum Standards for Social Studies. The working group comprised of K-12 educators, post-secondary representatives, parents and business representatives, and the group's unprecedented and comprehensive curriculum proposals were designed to teach about the Lakota people, their history, and how it intertwines with everyday life throughout the state and the country. In Washington, D.C., U.S. officials this past Monday declared the first-ever water shortage from a river that serves 40 million people in the West, including indigenous nations, and triggering cuts to some Arizona farmers for next year amid a systemic drought. Water levels at the largest reservoir on the Colorado River, Lake Mead, have fallen to record lows. Along its perimeter, a white bathtub ring of minerals outlines where the high water line once stood, underscoring the acute water challenges for a region facing a growing population and a drought that is being worsened by hotter, drier weather brought on by the climate crisis. Water levels at the reservoir have been falling since 1999 due to the ongoing dry spell enveloping the West and increased water demand. Cities such as Las Vegas, Phoenix, and Tucson and Native American nations are shielded from the first round of water cuts. And in Washington, D.C., newly released 2020 U.S. Census figures reflect a significant growth in the American Indian and Alaska Native population over the past decade. The American Indian and Alaska Native population alone and in combination increased from 5.2 million in 2010 to 9.7 million in 2020, an 86.5% increase and the largest recorded population increase of indigenous peoples for more than a century. This now makes American Indian and Alaska Native people 2.9% of the U.S. population. And in Washington, D.C., President Biden has nominated Charles Chuck Sams III to serve as director of the National Park Service on Wednesday. If confirmed, the former director of the Confederated Tribes of the Omatilla Indian Reservation and current member of the Northwest Power and Conservation Council would be the first Native American to direct the National Park Service that oversees millions of acres of ancestral indigenous lands and territories and treaty lands now part of the National Park System or monuments. And COVID-19 rates are surging throughout Indian country and indigenous communities, particularly throughout Oklahoma City, the Southwest, the Northern Plains regions, and other areas across the country. 
According to Indian Health Services, as of August 16th, the seven-day rolling average positivity rates for the top four areas impacting Indigenous peoples and nations are Oklahoma City and Oklahoma, with a 19.2% seven-day rolling average positivity rate, California at 15.5%, Nashville, Tennessee at 11.8%, and Phoenix, Arizona at 11.7%. The COVID-19 pandemic has disproportionately affected indigenous populations across the country. American Indians and Alaska Natives have infection rates over three and a half times higher than non-Hispanic whites are over four times more likely to be hospitalized as a result of COVID-19 and have higher rates of mortality at younger ages than non-Hispanic whites. And in Northern California, the Caldor Fire, which ignited on August 14th in El Dorado County, located about 60 miles east of Sacramento, continues to rapidly expand. This past Wednesday, the Caldor Fire grew at double the pace from roughly 30,000 acres on Tuesday to 62,586 acres and has caused over 23,000 people to evacuate the area. Meanwhile, the Dixie Fire continues spreading throughout the Plumas National Forest, Laysan National Forest, Laysan Volcanic National Park, four counties, which also includes the traditional ancestral lands of the Maidu Nation and continues causing major and irreparable harm to the environment, plants, animals, decreasing air quality, and more. To date, the Dixie Fire according to CAL FIRE, is 35% contained, has spread to more than 662,000 acres, is now the largest blaze on record in the United States, and has destroyed over 1,120 structures and threatens another 15,000 buildings. The Dixie Fire has been burning for at least 36 days as of August 19th of this year. And that concludes the news here on American Indian Airwaves. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back. Kids were sent from heaven inside to lead you to the future. Wrap their eyes in blindfolds and still they'll find their way. Blind their lives with pills
Their ears were filled with gold That their grandfathers had stolen out of the black hills And round and round the dance goes on But the children are idle no more And they will dream the dream my mother sends to them And they'll sing bye-bye scars of history And bye-bye beggars' trust Your Aquarius is shining Today on American Indian Airwaves, I have the honor and pleasure of interviewing Don Hankins from the Miwok Nation. He's professor of geography and planning at California State University, Chico State, and he joins us for a two-segment interview to discuss the recent California Dixie Fire, surrounding fires, the droughts, and its impacts on California indigenous peoples and their respective First Nations. We discuss historical trauma and environmental grief in relationship to the fires and droughts, along with how traditional indigenous fire management practices are a viable means for creating culturally sustainable spaces for future generations, plus more. In now the first segment of a two-part interview with Don Hankins on how the Dixie Fires are impacting Northern California indigenous peoples. Yeah, well, I would say in general what I see with the Dixie Fire, and and I've seen this with other fires that have taken place this year too, like the Tamarack Fire and uh, the Bootleg Fire up in Oregon. You know, it's like all of these fires are taking place in indigenous homelands. And for me, you know, working in, in the sphere of fire and working with indigenous communities, trying to promote the use of fire and relearn it and, you know, help agencies to understand it and the public to understand it so that we can actually hopefully get to a point where we are um, changing fire behavior and avoiding these kind of fires, which is based on our knowledge systems. You know, as I see these fires burning, I recognize that it's affecting indigenous peoples and the communities and also knowing the, the specifics of where these fires are taking place, and specifically those ones that I've named, you know, the Dixie, the Tamarack, and, and the Bootleg Fire in particular, you know, there are tribes that, and, and people, communities working together to bring fire back into these places, and they've been instrumental in, in doing that in certain um, circumstances. Even, you know, this past spring, uh, burns taking place within the Plumas National Forest and on private lands involving some tribal folks that now these lands have you know been subject again to to this fire and i haven't been up to see like within the footprint of the of the dixie fire um what the effects of of those earlier burns that took place were or anything um to that um that sense but i think what kind of alarms me and in, in, in specifically to the dixie fire is when you look at maps of fire histories um going back I think, to the late 1800s in California and where various fires have taken place. You know, the the Feather River drainage in its own, where the Dixie Fire originated at, is a very fire-prone landscape. It burns very frequently, and there's hardly an inch of it that that hadn't burned within the last, you know, 100 years, and probably even hardly an inch of it that didn't burn within the last 20 years. I mean, the Dixie Fire originally was burning through the footprint of uh, of other fires, um, such as the you know the Butte Lightning Complex from 2008, 
and the Story Fire and others. And then it's also been burning through places that haven't had fire in, you know, the kind of the map fire history of California. And that's a lot of the land that, that it's kind of burning through, um, at least on the kind of the northern and western side of it right now, is places that haven't had those kind of fires. But certainly have had a lot of uh, forest stewardship or forest management, I'll call it, because it's not really stewardship. It's, you know, timber companies basically, you know, doing, doing their thing and the Forest Service doing their thing in, in those places. My point, though, is that, you know, with this fire proneness of these landscapes is that the types of fires that, that the Dixie Fire and these other fires have been has not been the same as indigenous fires and not necessarily creating that same impact within the landscape. And, um, you know, in terms of, like, the beneficial side that, that is stewarding for water, is stewarding for our relations, and on the other side of it, you know, it, depending on how fast this fire is moving and what the severity of it is, is devastating these places, devastating the cultural attributes of these places. And I've heard, you know, many Maidu folks refer to this idea that a lot of their homeland has burned in, in recent years. And, you know, what's the psychological impact of that to see your landscape and everything that's familiar change so rapidly? And, you know, unfortunately, a lot of the things that are familiar, the conifers uh, in particular and the, and the oaks and the meadows, you know, depending on how this fire burns uh, through these different places, may change them for generations to come. And so those relationships that people have historically had to place, um, you know, are, are inevitably going to have changed because of, of some of these fires, too, and the way that these fires move to the landscape. Well, you mentioned the psychological impact, and, and I can't help but think of, you know, historical trauma. So how do these fires, right, compound, amplify, and exacerbate, right, this idea of historical trauma? And what does that mean in terms of those changes and any type of uh, future existing as Maidu or other, you know, Northern California, for example, indigenous nations? How does that permanently alter them, and does it alter them in a way uh, where they cease to become uh, who they are based on their original instructions? Right. That's a very powerful thing to think about. And, you know, unfortunately, if we think about the fire social science, Mm -hmm. when we look at disasters, you know, the fire social science points to certain things that take place, you know, in the time periods following fire. Um. And this is not specific to indigenous communities, but when you think about the intergenerational trauma that exists, it really exacerbates those kinds of problems that we experience. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, higher rates of, of divorce that, that typically follow, particularly for communities when, uh, you know, a house, houses have been burned down and families are living in different conditions and the lifestyle has changed because of that. Domestic violence increases you know, and, and substance abuse increases too. And so, you know, those three things in particular, I think, well, those are not foreign to us. We've, you know, we've been there. Those are things that have been carried out through generations because of that intergenerational trauma. And yet we need to know and we need to address these things and we need to have those communications um, and give the support to alleviate that, to make the change. And so that's the first and foremost thing on my mind at this point is, is that, you know, and and then on the other side of it, I think of well, what were the opportunities? You know, if if the tribes and you know the practitioners were engaged with 
doing stewardship and the desires to do stewardship in place and you know trying to get it to the right scale to prevent this kind of thing from happening in the first place you know there's a lot of um, you know policy that has come about over the years that have excluded indigenous peoples from the land from doing stewardship and things are starting to change within the state and also within the federal government to recognize the place of indigenous fire but you know, unfortunately, these kinds of fires are happening in the time period when that change is just starting to take place. Mm. And so, what's the what's the you know the longer term impact of of knowing what could have been done, but not actually having been able to make the change? That's the frustrating part. You know, sure. when you really see and know what needs to be done, but your hands are tied and you can't do anything to change that. So, those are you know just some of the thoughts that kind of come to my mind, uh, just as a as a quick response to thinking about that. And I don't, you know, I mean, there's going to be a lot more, I think, that's there, but those are some immediate ones that are there for sure. Dan, just given uh, the work that you do and uh, the network of, of people that you communicate with on a day-to-day or regular basis, uh, what are you hearing in terms of how the Dixie Fire is impacting other Indigenous peoples, but also other fires that are presently happening and how they're impacting Indigenous peoples? Um, you know, I guess in terms of, uh, of the direct impact, I, this, the psychological part of it is definitely a big, a big thing. You know, sure. And I haven't had a lot of communications with mm-hmm. folks because I, I am, am trying to give people space to deal with the the things that they need to, you know, deal with within their own communities and their own families and things like that um, sure. as these fires are burning. But I think that the, um, you know, that, that psychological drain of, of just knowing what's happening and that kind of what the opportunities were to make the change, mm-hmm. you know, and the work that needs to be done in the first place, I think is just a point of frustration for a lot of people. Sure. Um, so I'm, you know, I guess for me, I'm, I'm kind of giving, giving that time and, and, you know, thinking about ways that, you know, as a larger community and, a lar- and within the region, and I'm saying, you know, inclusive of, of non-Native peoples as well, you know, what are the opportunities we can come together to, to make change in the aftermath of the fires and help communities to heal um, while at this time, you know, people are kind of in that, um, you know, grieving state or, uh, you know, the other kinds of things that they're dealing with as as the fires are burning. Yeah, and, and the fires are uh, just not burning in Northern, Calif- uh, Northern California. There's fires in, in Utah and other places. And, you know, there's more than just fires uh, happening, as um, we were discussing earlier, right? It's hurricane season in the southeast, and I know they're expecting uh, more hurricanes this year and, and, and different kinds of um, characteristics to, to hur- hurricanes than what we've seen in the past. You know, the change, uh, dramatic change in climate on different parts of Mother Earth. So that's creating additional in the moment uh, urgencies that place indigenous peoples on the front lines, climate refugees, uh, native folks, whether it be the Northwest or in the Gulf of Mexico. And through all that is also uh, water, right? And they say water is life. And um, the U.S. government uh, issued a statement yesterday 
indicating that uh, there's a shortage of water in the Colorado River and that they'll be mandating water cuts to southwestern states. And even the Metropolitan Water District of Southern California, is uh, it's predicted they're going to call for water agencies to move towards uh, voluntary reducing uh, water demand and create right a quote-unquote unified conservation message for consumers I don't know what that means for businesses, but certainly uh, the role that water plays in the context of the climate crisis and the Dixie fires. So, you know, with the repetition of fires um, like the campfires and Dixie fires and other fires, what does that mean in terms of traditional notions of fire management practices within the context of cultural sustainability for indigenous peoples? Yeah, no, that's a great, great question. And, and I think it's important to also point out that, you know, the, the Feather River drainage in its own is, you know, one of the main um, sources for the state water project within the state of California. Mm-hmm. And so the Feather River drainage is come together at Orville Reservoir, and then, you know, it drains out um, towards the Delta and, and then is exported south through the Delta um, to users to the south, um, Bay Area, and, and so forth going on down. And so, I mean, we have to be thinking in terms of, like, well, one, what is the direct impact of this fire on, on the water supply um, in terms of pollutant loads, in terms of debris, that is going to be coming in through like mud flow and and those sorts of of things in the aftermath of fire and how does how does the infiltration capacity change for like water storage within um, the upland areas so you know the forested areas are areas that at least were forested um, prior to the fire and also you know the the springs themselves right so you know like in terms of traditional management of these places water and fire go hand in hand. And so if you think about where within the landscape you would get your water supplies from, those places were often stewarded with fire to ensure that that water could flow. And the forest and, you know, the the vegetated landscape was burned to steward for that water. And so, you know, when we think about the high mountain meadows, as an example, and, and I'm mainly mentioning that in relationship to the Dixie Fire, you know, these high mountain meadow areas, uh, a lot of them have been encroached upon by conifers, and so a lot of the work that people were trying to do was really about reducing conifer encroachment and restoring and stewarding these meadows. And in fact, the uh, Mountain Maidu uh, uh, Summit Consortium, uh, which is a an organization that's comprised of all uh, the Mountain Maidu tribes, you know, they, they have land that, that was uh, acquired and was being stewarded, you know, several thousand acres of uh, mostly meadow ecosystems where fire and other activities were taking place. And, you know, these, these have been impacted by this fire too. Um, you know, being that it's a drought year, uh, and I'll say a, a drought, you know, multi-decades really because it's, it's not something that's just uh, unique to this year. You know, when we think about the, the long view of water, um, we can look at rain years and say, okay, you know, which years did we get, uh, you know, normal rainfall or whatever or below normal or what was our snowpack in a given year. 
But really, from my perspective, and I think this is probably more along the lines of what the traditional understanding of this is, is how much do these, you know, the accumulation of those years provide for groundwater recharge and storage within the land itself and uh, the flow within our streams. And that's not been happening. I mean, really, probably at least for the last 20 years, that's not been happening within the state. So this year is, is kind of unique because not only are we, you know, seeing how dry it is within the forested ecosystems and the landscape as a whole, it's not it, it, it's just following a trajectory of, of what's there. So the, the specifics in terms of this fire, though, mm-hmm. around around the way that that uh, what what's made it so much more difficult is how dry that land is. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, even though we had a pretty good you know rain year in twenty was it twenty eighteen in this region, you know, we haven't had that recharge. So the forest is taking up a lot of water and you know our rivers are are flowing uh with that groundwater that that comes through but there's not been replenishment of it and so when we think about the forest fuels that are there and those that would have been wetted over a longer period of time with say melting snow and and those factors that would be part of that um, system held in the soil held in the the organic material you know this system has been dry since pretty much the later part of the spring in a lot of these areas. And so without having those little reservoirs of water within the soil, within the vegetation communities, what we'll call like the live fuel uh, moisture differential, like there's not much to keep this fire in check, and it makes it that much more difficult to um, to try to uh, slow it down and change its behavior, particularly because we haven't used fire um, within these, these spaces. And that's... That's concerning to me because we're we're just at you know kind of the the beginning of what would we would normally consider our typical fire season you know the late summer early fall um, until the weather uh, you know changes we have cooler temperatures we have you know moisture in the air and some rain um, we've got a long season ahead of us still and that's what's alarming you know this fire is already you know pushing close to six hundred thousand acres. And you know, I, I don't want to be uh, you know somebody who, who projects numbers out there, but I you know I I do think that this this fire has the potential to go to over a million acres, um, just based on the conditions that are out there right now. And you're listening to American Indian Airwaves. We're speaking with Don Hankins from the Miwok Nation. He's professor of geography and planning at California State University, Chico State. We've been discussing the California Dixie Fire, surrounding fires, the droughts, and its impact on California indigenous peoples, as well as discussing historical trauma and environmental grief compounded by the recent fires and drought, and how traditional indigenous fire management practices are a viable means for creating culturally sustainable spaces for future generations. That concludes the first segment of this two-segment interview here on American Indian Airwaves. We're going to take a short break and come back with the second segment of how the fires and the drought is impacting California indigenous peoples, as well as discussing the recent Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change Sixth Assessment Report and what it means for indigenous peoples. One earth, one people, one peace One chance is all we get 
song One Chance by Tracy Lee Nelson here on American Indian Airwaves. In the final segment of today's program, we continue the interview with Don Hankins from the Miwok Nation. He's professor of geography and planning at California State University, Chico State. We have been discussing the recent California Dixie Fire, surrounding fires, the droughts, historical trauma, and environmental grief, and how it continues to impact and will impact California indigenous peoples. We've also been discussing, and we continue the discussion, of how traditional indigenous fire management practices are a viable means for creating culturally sustainable spaces for future generations. In this next segment, we continue the interview on the role of water in relationship to traditional forms of fire management practices, as well as discuss the recently published Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change Sixth Assessment Report and what it means for Indigenous peoples. And now, the second segment of our interview with Don Hankins from the Miwok Nation. Don, in talking about water in relationship to 
traditional forms of indigenous fire management practices, we haven't been discussing the role or the the notion of the quality of the water in relationship to uh, indigenous forms of fire management practices. So you know, when I think of that, I think about the history in, of California of settler colonial violence perpetrated against the land and the water. So you have the mining industries, you have the logging industries, you have the industrialized agricultural industries, but also the farming industries uh, going back to the 1800s. So what role does the quality of water play in relationship to traditional indigenous cultural forms of fire management practices? Yeah, no, you're absolutely right, and and that's that's the bigger thing in terms of the short-term impacts. You know, following a wildfire is is what the pollutant loads are within those streams. So, as I mentioned, like the debris flows and the mud, you know, the mud uh, slides and things like that, all contribute those sorts of things. And then, you know, when you deal with communities actually burning, the materials that the houses are built out of and and other infrastructure. And cars, I mean, there have been several reports that have kind of come out pointing to how um, even after the campfire, like the amount of lead that was found in in uh, adjacent areas because of car batteries and, you know, those kind of things. And I think about, like, aluminum loads, and I'm not, I don't look at these kind of things. Like, I have colleagues at CSU Chico that, that do, have been doing this, this research looking at the, um, you know, the water quality impacts in local streams and areas that burn during the campfire and, and not. But you know some of our streams, particularly in the in you know the season immediately following the campfire, had very high levels of aluminum um, that that would be uh, toxic, are toxic to fish, and you know like some of the local streams are very important places for very spe- specific cultural species like spring run chinook salmon, mm. and so you know if if these levels are this high, then there's that potential for those fish not to be able to survive. This year happened to be actually a pretty good year um, for the return of those fish, but then the the heat of the summer um, has been more problematic for them. So we had a good return, but then the heat comes in. Uh, you know, there's those kind of things. I bring the fish into the conversation because they're an indicator of our water quality, right? If we have a healthy ecosystem, cool water, clean water, you know, those, those uh, fish in particular are going to be there. And so when we're stewarding in the right kind of way, we minimize the impacts to species like that. And if we're stewarding in a way that's been, you know, kind of the, the way that things have been done with wildfire um, being kind of the norm, those, you know, the certainty of, of the water quality and the quantity of water then becomes a lot more questionable, um, you know, around that. Donna can't help but think about the recently published sixth assessment report by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. And when we talk about the climate crisis, uh, right, we understand that indigenous peoples and their respective First Nations ancestors have endured uh, various forms of climate crisis as a result 
of settler colonial violence perpetrated against them and Mother Earth, whether it be the establishment of the Virginia colony and its scorched earth policies to the establishment of the Alta Spanish mission system along the coastal lines and the scorched earth policies engaged uh, back then. And also of the understanding that when it comes to the IPCC's first four assessment uh, reports, indigenous peoples were excluded from the process. And it's only in the fifth and sixth assessment reports where indigenous peoples have had a participatory role. And so in this 4,000, roughly 4,000 page IPCC six assessment reports, your thoughts on the report and its implications for indigenous peoples and their respective First Nations. Right. Well, in all fairness, Larry, I have to share that I have not had the time to read that document <laughs> just yet. Um, I have I have started skimming it, but I do not know it uh, in its entirety. So um, in, in that sense, know that I, that I, you know, take it with a grain of salt, right? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But, um, you know, in terms of, in terms of the inclusion of indigenous peoples into climate assessment, uh, reports and climate, you know, planning, I think it's, uh, it's definitely an important step. I myself have been, uh, you know, uh, an author to the state of California's fourth climate assessment report, you know, as part of a team that, that worked on that. And now the fifth climate assessment report is, is starting to, you know, the team team for that is starting to come together. Um, and, and those, the, the fourth was the first one that included indigenous peoples for the state of California. You know, so I guess my point in, in, in mentioning, you know, why it's important to include indigenous peoples in the conversations is that, one, obviously these are our homelands, and right. we know our homelands, and we know if if we're connected to our knowledge systems, we know what, you know, the, the range of, so, so to call it, like maybe the range of variability within our systems are, you know, what our ancestors have gone through in the past, how they dealt with it, um, those kind of knowledge systems which are critical to our survival, um, as human beings, but also, you know, the survival of our uh, responsibilities, our relations within the landscape. And so when we think about that kind of knowledge system, one, it gives us a framework for monitoring and assessing what changes are actually taking place and, you know, kind of taking, you know, mental note of, of what is happening. And for me, I, you know, I, I often think of these traditional stories as a way that, that help us to understand that. You know, we see the stories uh, or we know the stories that are sometimes uh, passed down, and I know not not all tribes have the complete set of those stories today, but, you know, if we, if we understand and learn the lessons from what we do have and start paying better attention to our landscapes, we can start to see these things happening for ourselves and start to then weigh that across time to know, okay, these shifts in species are happening or, um, you know, the shifts in the phenology of the plants, so their flowering, you know, states and, and different things like that, we start to pay better attention to it and we start to see how that affects the different, uh, you know, other relations within that system. And that's those are the things that we need to be paying attention to because, you know, obviously we're connected to it. Our lives yeah. are ultimately dependent on the survival of the systems around us. And... Um, so I think that's that's kind of my, my main point of why Indigenous peoples should be involved in these sorts of things. And then obviously, obviously when we think about 
you know, the relationships to, like, biodiversity um, and the stewardship of biodiversity, the shifts in climate obviously inf- influence that. And so some of us may be experiencing uh, and observing new species coming into areas and, um, you know, what do those represent in terms of the, the food webs, the, the, you know, which we would traditionally have that knowledge system to tell us about the food webs and the ecosystems we're working in and how is that maybe being disrupted and how do we correct for that and, you know, all these different things. Um, but it also comes back into this discussion we're having about fire, too, because, you know, when we think about the um, types of fires we're having and, you know, how we can shape the future with fire um, and tie that to biodiversity, like those are really big things that if we're not paying attention, we're, we're going to get it wrong and we're going to lose a lot of stuff that we're, you know, as I said earlier in, in the discussion, familiar with. Okay. And so if we lose the trees that, that we're, you know, reliant on, such as oaks, um, for their acorns, you know, not only do we lose those oaks, but the birds right. that are, um, you know, caching those acorns and eating those acorns and the bear and the deer and all the other animals that, that feed on acorns, you know, and the, and the bees that pollinate and all, you know, all these different things that are connected to the oaks also then suffer. And um, those are, I think those are the bigger risks. And I think if we can integrate that kind of knowledge into these plans, and, you know, I know many tribes have developed their own climate adaptation plans to, to address the needs for their own cultural areas. But as we start to scale that globally, you know, the integration of indigenous knowledge systems and the commonalities that we often have with other indigenous groups, say between the North America and Australia, for instance, um, you know, we can start to kind of fill in the gaps where maybe that knowledge is missing in certain places and we can use the, the common, you know, knowledge systems to kind of span that and fill in the gaps. You're listening to American Indian Airwaves, and we're speaking with Don Hankins from the Miwok Nation, professor of geography and planning at California State University, Chico State. We're speaking on the California Dixie Fire, the surrounding fires, the droughts, historical trauma, environmental grief, and its impact on California indigenous peoples. We're also discussing traditional forms of indigenous fire management practices as a viable way for creating culturally sustainable spaces for future generations. And now back to the interview. Don, in listening to you talk about the importance of relationality, I can't help but think about how over the decades and generations, more and more indigenous peoples live in urban environments. They live in someone else's traditional ancestral homelands. And so, you know, roughly two-thirds to three-fourths of all indigenous peoples live in urban environments, hundreds oftentimes thousands of miles away from their traditional ancestral homelands, their communities, uh, their families, their nations, and even the recent uh, release of granular data by the U.S. Census Bureau shows more and more people living in urban environments. So when you talk about the importance of relationality, what does that mean for so many urban indigenous peoples living in urban environments away from their traditional ancestral homelands and in someone else's traditional lands. Right. Uh, you know, that's a great question. And, and as you were asking, the thought that was floating through my mind, and, and maybe this isn't the right answer, but I think, well, those of us who live in the woods, um, we're kind of the canary in the coal mine, you know, mm. to use that analogy, <laughs> because we're seeing it. And, you know, those of us who maintain those 
those connections to our homelands and you know those responsibilities going out and collecting plants as you know as fibers and and food and medicine and you know having those relationships with the animals and so forth that you know we're seeing it firsthand and and when we share that information you know sometimes i think it's hard for others who don't they can't relate to it because they're not they just don't have that experience and and so forth but I think it's really important to then lean on that knowledge system and, and support the folks who are seeing it firsthand and recognize that, you know, it is actually happening um, because I think a lot of times people get disconnected from nature. And I think that's that's definitely a trend that, we, that we've seen over decades, um, particularly here within the U.S., is that, you know, people have become more disconnected from nature. And it's easier than to dismiss, you know, that, that you know, climate change or any of these things are actually happening. But you know, ultimately, as I said, we're all connected to it. We, you know, we all have a reliance on, you know, pollinators. We all have a reliance on, you know, the services, so to speak, that I, I hate that term, but, right. you know, that, that these ecosystems pr- provide to our landscapes and our homelands. And when we have that relationship with those places and we steward those, those things, it helps to buffer them against the kinds of impacts that climate change is and will have. Um, and in some cases, you know, the, the kinds of, uh, of shifts that we're going to see aren't necessarily things that can be entirely handled, uh, such as sea level rise. Um, but, I, you know, like we, we ne- not necessarily can we control that through indigenous ways of stewarding, but those ecosystems, and in particular, I'm thinking of like tidal marshes and, and, and so forth, you know, what are our stewardship relationships within these places and how, if we're not stewarding and not able to steward in these places, how could those things help those ecosystems to shift and survive to be there in the future? And so when I think about, oh, I don't know, you're down in Southern California, I think about, you know, the uh, Bolsa Chica wetlands or, you know, those folks in the San Francisco Bay Area, you know, that whole... Um, tidal marsh system right. and the estuary, you know, how how can you maintain that system to be as productive as it can be and to um, to function in a way that it helps to A-grade? So, you know, if I think about the tidal marsh systems in the San Francisco Bay and tulies that are growing there, you know, at some point those tulies are going to need to get burned because they'll they'll slowly die off because of not having um, enough sunlight coming in. And so, you know, process is a really important thing. And if in humans, you know, being in that system, we are also part of that process. And so by burning, for instance, we can help those plants to maintain their productivity, can help them to trap sediments better, um, and those sorts of things that, that ultimately may allow for them to change and be with the sea level rise depending on how rapidly it, it occurs. Um, you know, if we're, if we're seeing a sea level rise that's, you know, happening, you know, very rapidly, it, it may be impossible for some of these systems to catch up or keep up. But if we give them a chance, you know, that's really the, the best hope that we can do and give them a space to be the, the, in the areas that they can be. Um, that's kind of where I'm going with that. And what about students considering your role as a professor uh, working in an urban environment when there's in-class instructions? How do you convey that sense of relationality? You know, I often tell my students, you know, teaching at CSU Chico, we've got uh, this riparian corridor that comes through uh, the middle of campus. 
And I tell students, if you come to campus early in the morning, you can listen to all the different birds that are here. Like, as I walk onto campus myself, I'm listening to who's there. They're telling me the messages of the day, change in weather systems that are coming um, and different things like that. Um, that normally, I, you know, if you're not paying attention to it, you're not going to think, oh, I'm going to need to, like, bring a raincoat in two days or whatever. Um, but those birds will tell you that, and you have to know, like, what those species are and, and start to, you know, keep track of who, what they're doing and how, how, you know, these changes that are taking place within our landscape is affecting them too. And you can do that in, in even the most urbanized areas. Don, as we wrap up the interview, I know last year I asked you this question when I had the honor and privilege to speak with you regarding the California campfire and how that was impacting Northern California indigenous peoples. And we talked about traditional indigenous cultural fire management practices, but a lot's changed. Uh, a lot hasn't changed, but we have more of the same and a lot has changed. Uh, more fires uh, uh, creating a more compounded uh, effect uh, on all relations, amplifying and exacerbating historical trauma and environmental grief. And and one of the things I'd like to close with, considering a lot's changed with the amplification and the continuation of the COVID-19 pandemic, a lot of uh, mourning that has been experienced, uh, more mourning to be experienced by Indigenous peoples and just other people in general. But your message to the youth uh, given the precarious times that we live in, uh, what what would be good words to share with the younger generation and uh, the leaders of the future? You know, I, I think for younger people, it's important to, and I may have said this before, so, so I, I apologize if, uh, if I've repeated myself from the previous interview, but um, it's imperative for us to maintain knowledge of our traditions and to carry those forward because the ways that our ancestors have lived have sustained us in these places since the beginning of time. And it's, it's embedded us to be who we are. It is that thing that, that makes us indigenous. We are connected to the system, the plants, the animals, the fungi, the, the bacteria, you know, the viruses, all of that is part of that system. And, when we know about it, and we particularly know it through the lens of our traditions, that gives us the the ability to move that forward as things change. We can, you know, because our knowledge systems are not fixed in time. They're not fixed in, in that kind of a way. They adapt, and so, we, you know, it integrates um, these changes. But we have to be familiar with them to, to be able to do something with it. The the thing that I think is is really something that kind of stands out to me, and particularly for young folks that might be um, motivated to go to uh, university or uh, you know pursue other pursuits like that, um, you know, is that we really need people who are also then versed in knowing the sciences. And I know sometimes within our communities we um, kind of steer people away from that because of past. Um, issues with those disciplines, you know, but I think that there is a strong need for more indigenous students and native students as a whole to engage in the sciences. We need to have people who understand what the IPPC report tells us. We need to have people who understand what that model means and how to improve that model. How can a model improve 
be improved to represent indigenous ways of thinking. Um, and, you know, and that's actually something that I've been able to work a little bit on um, within some of the works that I've been doing over the past year is, you know, helping people to understand models and, and integrate in our knowledge systems, not giving it away, but saying, hey, what if you thought about it in this way? This is more in alignment with the way that we think about it. Um, you know, like that's, that's the, the beauty of being able to have that scientific background is to be able to be the intermediary sometimes uh, that's needed because that, you know, as Einstein is attributed to saying, you know, we can't solve the problems with the same uh, solution of, of what created the problem, right, uh, or, you know, kind of paraphrasing it. So, you know, our indigenous ways of thinking are, have been able to make us to be able to survive in these places for this long. We need to bring it back, and we need to be thinking about that and how to integrate it to the way that we as a global society can survive and, and integrate that knowledge systems too because we all share that responsibility. The moment of silence is over. And that was the second segment of our interview with Don Hankins from the Miwok Nation. He's professor of geography and planning at California State University, Chico State. We've been speaking on the California Dixie Fire, the surrounding fires, the droughts, historical trauma and environmental grief and its impact on California indigenous peoples. We've also been speaking on traditional indigenous fire management practices as a viable means for creating culturally sustainable spaces for future generations. And that concludes our show for today here on American Indian Airwaves. A special thank you to our guest for the hour, Don Hankins. A special thank you to our musical guest, Aragon Star, Koopa Aina, Buffy St. Marie, Tracy Lee Nelson, and the band Blackfire. American Indian Airwaves is mixed and mastered in the studio of Burnt Swamp Studio in Signal Hill, California. For Marcus Lopez, I've been your host for the hour, Larry Smith. Until next time. Nor the hands that hold the chains In a rhythm of resistance We still fight for our lives In this war that never ended We've outdrawn your lives Let our actions speak When they ignore our Silence is over.